Hello and welcome to another episode of Chai with the Pre-Med Guys, where my friend Bali Brazada and myself, Saeed Khan, share with you the stories of experienced medical students and medical professionals. Our hope is that through these stories, you might be able to find the answers to questions or challenges you have been facing in your pursuit to medicine. On today's ep- episode, we are very proud to host a very special guest from Stony Brook Medicine, right across the road from our own alma mater. Joining us today in our Chai time is Fellowship Director of Stroke and Assistant Professor of Neurology, Dr. Jason Matthew. Dr. Matthew attended NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed his residency and fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Matthew through the Stroke Symposium hosted by the Stony Brook Cerebrovascular and Comprehensive Stroke Center, and I knew I had to invite him to share his journey to medicine in our podcast. With that being said, Dr. Matthew, welcome to Chai with the Pre-Med Guys, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Excellent. Well, thanks. Thank you guys for having me here. I think it's really wonderful for the things that you guys are doing. I think there's, it's a lot of important information out there that people need to learn. So I, I applaud the kind of efforts that you guys are doing. So good work with that and really excited to be here. So with regards to kind of, you know, a little bit about myself, as you said that, you know, I did my medical school training at NICOM or NYT College about this osteopathic medicine. And I ended up doing my, and then kind of got really interested in neurology even, I have to say, maybe I should even step back even kind of before I even started NICOM, I was actually doing a bunch of uh, neurology research. Um, I think early on during undergraduate, I did my undergraduate at Rutgers, sorry. And uh, during that time I did spend a lot of time, I ended up kind of in a neurology lab, a neurosciences lab. We were learning a lot about uh, learning and behavior and um, and from that kind of really got really interested in just kind of the topic of the brain and the neurosciences. And I kind of, as in that time process, I really got into medicine and then, you know, I really wanted to explore it more and really was ex- excited to kind of help people. And so I did more research and then found myself applying to medical school. So it was one of those things that you kind of go through one step at a time and you really, I don't know what the the best way to put it, but you really, one thing after another, there's all these kind of series of experiences that you have and you kind of um, follow it and eventually got into medical school. And I took this kind of longer path, this more of a, this torturous path, probably about two, three years. And I did research in between all doing kind of neurology, neuroscience. So I spent some time doing learning and memory and then did some time in neurotoxicology looking at kind of the effect of pesticides on kind of, uh, you know, and neurotoxicology. And then, um, and then that ended up at NICOM. And then with that, and as I went through my career at NICOM and my kind of education at NICOM, I, uh, I kind of, in the back of my mind, I knew neurology just because it just felt, it was one of those things that you get these gut feelings that it just felt like it was comfortable and the content was just so comfortable to me, even as I learned neuroanatomy. And so it just felt right. And then I just kind of went in and did the neurology residency at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and I loved every minute of it. And now kind of here I am, you know. Absolutely. Here you are. That was a, that was a great recap. Um, what's it called? Me? I don't know if you uh, saw, it's like when you were talking about your undergrad research part, um, mm-hmm. our faces kind of lit up when you were talking about the <laughs> pesticides research. Because that's what me, uh, Wally uh, just graduated Stonybrook. I'm still a senior right now. We are actually doing research on pesticides right now 
on earthworms and these organisms called planaria. So oh, it was cool. just like, it was just like a connection. I was like, oh my god, that this is yeah, crazy. It, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of again, there's a, there's a lot of cool things kind of going on that people are doing here at Stony Brook and other universities that you know, and they're really people are really interested and passionate about doing it. And you know, these you may not think when you're in like high school or undergrad that you'll be like studying probably earthworms or rodents, mm -hmm. but you ended up kind of you know getting really into it. So it's actually really cool. Absolutely, no, for sure. I mean, it's. I think you hit the nail on the head, Dr. Matthew, with like talking about like how much of a struggle it is. But like one thing that really shines through when you like give that summary of, of your like journey is that it seems like throughout the way you were involved in things that you liked and you found interesting. And, you know, we always we always get that spiel that, OK, no, you don't need to know what you're interested in because you're just a student right now. But I feel like even if you don't know this is what you want to do, just pursuing it because it seems interesting at least you know if it's not the right path you'll be at a different vantage point yeah I, I think the best way to put it is I call it like crumbs of curiosity right there, there are mm -hmm. these like you know there there's a path in front of you and you get a little bit curious about different things and then there's this kind of path that you're slowly following and you know these kind of crumbs of curiosity of, that you follow and you're like oh I'm, I, I am a little curious about this let me do this right and you know, and over over the course of kind of going through these experiences, you really realize it kind of leads you to something that actually, if you kind of look back, you probably never would have thought that you would have kind of followed this path and ended up here. And so I think that even, and for my, my path, like I said, it was a very tortuous path in the sense that, you know, I didn't go from undergraduate to medical school and kind of do these things right away. Rather, I kind of spent some time doing these things and, you know, um, my parents hated it, but, you know, because I took time doing these things, but, you know, I, I think it, it, at the very end of it, I think um, it made me more passionate about, I would have to say, about kind of what I was doing at the end of it, right? Absolutely. It made you more sure about the yeah. path that you're taking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's kind of one, you know, I know you guys do a lot of kind of what's your advice. That's one kind of, and I, as I was kind of kind of looking through some of the different kind of uh, people that you've had and which is great. Uh, I just, I know you kind of tend to ask that. And that's kind of one thing I would say is that kind of follow that, those bits of curiosity, follow those crumbs of curiosity and you'll kind of be happy at the end. Awesome. Absolutely. No, I mean, definitely like you put it like, uh, so I know that so much of our, of the people that listen in um, can resonate with that, you know, the whole struggles of like, you know, getting through prereqs first then yeah. graduating, going through gap years. That's me and soon Saeed um, and then applying. But, you know, there's so many steps along the way. And, you know, I, I want to I wanted to ask you, like, what is the thing that got you through all those steps? You know, what exactly are the steps you took, you know, after to get into medical school? What exactly were the struggles you faced and how how did you tackle them to make them bearable? Because, you know, for so many people, the that dream of, um, you know, pursuing medicine just remains a dream because it is crush under the undeniably like great you know um pressure that comes from you know outside you know community or just self-expectations um and you know whether that was your your strong why that got you through whether that was your curiosity or you know you seem like a very optimistic person or your optimism what exactly was it that you know got you through those struggles and how did that shape you as a doctor yeah i would say great question i think it, i would say it is 
a little bit of the optimism and the curiosity. I think mm-hmm. it was, you know, so I'll integrate into there. So some of the struggles that I faced was, was actually kind of initially getting into medical school and, you know, I kind of, dur- during undergraduate, I wasn't the most focused all the time. And so, you know, I ended up, once I realized what I wanted to do, then I kind of got really, I kind of sat down and really kind of ended up focusing. And it's kind of, a, it's a little bit about me is that, you know, once I kind of know I want to do something, I kind of make, there's kind of not much of a divergence from that. I'm like, uh, no matter what, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to get it. And I think that's kind of what I stuck with that, you know, even if, you know, I academically, maybe I always wasn't on par with the traditional applicant. I realized that I was going to get to where I was going and, you know, whether it be through kind of unique experiences, whether it be through kind of research, I was going to kind of figure my path to get there. And so uh, again, mixture of curiosity and kind of optimism, but, you know, there, there's very few things that in my life that I was very, I've been very, very sure about going into medicine was one of them. Fortunately. Relentless, optimistic curiosity. That's, that's what it seems like. Yeah, I think, yeah, three good (laughs) words. Yeah, I would have to say, yeah. Absolutely, Dr. Matthew. And um, I feel like that's where we are essentially right now, because like we see people that are essentially like, as well, you said, it's like some of our friends have already gotten into med school. Some of them are like preparing for med school right now. And it's just like, it feels like we're standing on like the shore of like a giant river that we have to cross. And I don't know where we're going to be next. And it's just like that optimism and that feeling of like, everything's going to be okay. That's what's like carrying us. So it's like, it's just, it's just something that we have to deal with. And fortunately we have people like you who are assuring us that everything's going to be okay. And you have to be optimistic that the fact that we can go through it. Yeah. And I, and I think there, there is, people don't realize that there's got, I think there's just multiple ways to kind of get to where you're going and people think about there's these kind of traditional paths, mm-hmm. but these days there's just so many different kind of ways to get to that point. And sometimes, you know, I've had, I've had friends that, you know, sometimes you talk about a wave, right? About this kind of wave of, of being, of these challenges of kind of getting into med school. Sometimes the challenges ended up becoming, you know, the reason why they went and chose a different path. And they were so appreciative that they went through that challenge because they realized that they actually really loved something else, right? So it's almost mm-hmm. that challenge is a little bit more it's necessary, right? To kind of really test our overall passion for it, right? Because at the end of the day, my feeling is that, you know, you really want people that will have, are really passionate about it and kind of really want to do it and, and not just this kind of most intelligent, right? But yet the people that really kind of want to do it. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, and it's a painful process. It is, it, by all means, it is a very painful process. And when I was going through the process, I know now they were offering the MCAT kind of every month or something. When I was doing it, they were only offering it twice a year. And so if, let's say if you didn't do it, if you didn't do well, then you're kind of screwed and you have to kind of wait the next cycle and that sort of thing, right? And so, you know, it, there was a lot of this waiting game. And then, you know, um, you're, try, you're trying to think of what you were going to do with in those next year or two. And so I think that one of the most painful things is kind of not knowing where you're gonna be 
a year from now, mm-hmm. right? And it had absolutely. been like that for some time, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It seems like you have gone through a lot. It's almost like that poem. It's like the road less taken almost. Yeah. It's like essentially that's that's what you're essentially describing. But um, since you're like elaborating on this on this journey that you've been through, like all the pains that you've experienced, why don't you just walk us through all this this journey just reflecting back like what's what's some experiences that you've had in your undergrad which is what might be in like your pre-med or grab years that made you who you are right now and what advice would you give to you know people like us me and Wally what would you give advice to us about how to prepare for this long big journey ahead so and I was kind of alluding to it and I was kind of talking about my journey but you know so again my interested medicine started with just truly just kind of curiosity about the body curiosity about the brain and also this passion to kind of help people which i believe probably the majority of people have that actually kind of choose this path um and you know for me it was you know i started off doing the research and i didn't go into medical school, I'm sorry, go into undergraduate thinking that I was going to be doing anything with research or rats or, you know, um, doing any, you know, um, any of that work. But I just kind of, I I did it. I followed that curiosity and I kind of also leaned into something that was a little bit uncomfortable to me, right? In the sense of like something that wasn't, I didn't think I would ever really like doing, but why not just follow it, right? So you kind of have to have this kind of, why not? Just just, just try it, right? I think it's just, just try it and, and see where it kind of takes you. And so, um, and that's kind of what I did. And I kind of followed that, that path of why not? You know, even it feels a little bit out of my comfort zone. I think that was the only way I was gonna kind of be able to get to medical school is doing some of these atypical things, right? And so I did, I did, even though now in retrospect, it's probably not atypical at all. Many people do research in my mind at the time, right? It wasn't, I, did, I felt like it was kind of a little bit atypical because it was going to be a longer path, but, um, you know, and so I just, I, one of the things and I realized as I was doing research was that, you know, I was in essence still kind of very much helping people, right? Still very much kind of being involved in kind of learning about the brain and thinking about how that would translate into kind of therapies and things. So that's kind of how I put it into my, into my mind of like, you know, this is something that would kind of help people down the line, learn about how we, how we learn things, how learning and memory works, how their brain works, that sort of thing. Right. And so it was, that's kind of what got me through the undergraduate path. And then, you know, going through medical school, another thing I had to lean into was, so I did this, so though at NICOM or at NYT, they had this path of where you just did problem, your whole medical school first two years was actually just purely problem-based learning. And many institutions have kind of adopted this, but at that time, to me, it was kind of a little, you know, very out of the ordinary, right? So you weren't going to, there was like about, probably about what, 30 to 50 of us doing just this path and the rest of them did the like traditional lecture, you know, PowerPoint and that sort of thing. And so for us, it was just kind of, you would go through cases and then learn essentially your first two years of medical school based on these cases, based on kind of going through textbooks. And again, something very out of my 
comfort zone, but something I leaned into and was like, oh, you know, let me, let me see what I can, let me see what it's about. Let me take a chance on, take a risk, take, take a chance on myself and let me see how it plans out. And it actually was one of the best decisions that I did, right? Was that because I ended up learning so much more because they, I took a pro, I did this kind of more of this active learning process where I myself was immersing myself not just kind of what a lecturer was saying, but rather in the actual books and then integrating that into these just case discussions and things like that. And so, you know, to make a long story short, I was, I was really just going through, you know, taking these kind of uh, risks mm. and taking these risks on myself while at the same time, you know, following bits of curiosity, right? Absolutely. Oh, hopefully I put that right. Oh yeah, absolutely. That 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 resonates pretty well with us right now because we're because me and Wally essentially I was talking to you about this. It's uh we joined this lab essentially where we're dealing with earthworms and little flatworms and whatnot where we did not ever expect to essentially like you know just go through that. Yeah. Um, so it's like go just like going through it, just like reflecting back on my college experience. Um, I was just like, okay, this is, I've never anticipated for this, but this has been the defining moment in my college career. Yeah. And I think sometimes as you're going through these, the experiences, it helps to kind of take a step back and look at big picture, right? Sometimes, you know, we do these things and you're cutting open earthworms and you're like, what does this mean to my overall, you know, my overall end game? What's my end game here? What's my process here? But taking a step back and thinking in terms of like, well, you know, this is what we're learning about. This is what, you know, what it, it could mean for, you know, medicines down the line or how we understand the brain or how we understand the body, whatever the case is. And so it kind of was help. It sometimes it kind of helps to kind of think about in terms like that. And so I've always been a very big picture kind of person as well. So that's kind of helped as well. No, for sure. Like, and speaking of the big picture, you know, and, you know, taking those sorts of risks and bets and, and steps into waters unknown, um, for, I think, you know, I, I read about this by one of our podcast guests, um, earlier that a big problem with medical education is that, you know, no matter what step you're at, you don't know a lot about the next step. Like if you're a pre-med, pre- we don't know anything about medical school as much as we should. If you're a med student, they don't know, they don't know what it's going to be like as residents. And, you know, I, this is very unfamiliar territory for me, but maybe, you know, residents don't know what, what fellows face. But, um, you know, that's also one of the benefits that, you know, we want to share with people by having doctors on here is that, you know, if there is that disconnect, if there is that divide in just knowledge of um, what lies ahead, um, let's try to bridge that by sharing experiences. And I think it would be great to hear more about, you know, what exactly your experience at NYIT was like, especially since, you know, me and Saeed are from Stony Brook, you know, a lot of our friends are from Stony Brook. Maybe some of the people that are listening now are from Stony Brook. And um, we know that a lot of Stony Brook um, pre-med students end up at, at NICOM, at NYIT. Um, I myself went to NYIT once. I visited a friend and, you know, everyone was great. Everyone was like, I found that it was like a really welcoming, nice environment. The professors were like so friendly. But I want to know what was your specific experience at NYIT? What do you think set it apart as an experience for you? And... Um, what would you sort of say to anyone that's curious as to what it's like to be an NYIT med student and how that's affect you, affected you, you know, all these years after so you graduated? 
so I've <clears throat> already spoken about, you know, just the problem-based learning curriculum. I think, mm. like I said, that was one of the best decisions I did. And I'm thankful that NYIT was able to offer it. And so my experience is like, was different from other students in that, you know, I spent a lot more time kind of outside of probably NYIT and probably in my room, just kind of with kind of textbooks and kind of doing all these things. That's, that was at least the first two years. But then, you know, I appreciated the cohort of people that actually did the problem-based learning with as well. And the facilitators that facilitated those discussions because they encouraged you because it's a very, because it's a very atypical way to kind of learn medicine. They have to be trained to, these facilitators have to be trained not to offer too much. And so these are, you know, these facilitators are very educated. They're very, they, you know, are doctors or PhDs and, you know, and it's hard for people sometimes, even now I think about if I were to ever do it, to keep their mouth shut and to let people say the wrong thing, right? Because, you know, the, these these students are kind of, you think about it, right? They're going through these case discussions and they're saying sometimes the blatant, most, you know, insane things sometimes. And that, you know, and, you know, we have to kind of correct each other and kind of learn kind of going through that and be like, oh, actually that was absolutely wrong, right? And so, and then we explain why it was wrong. But, you know, I appreciated that because one, it kind of, you never want to be in the position where you're wrong in those, mm -hmm. in those environments or to be called out on that. And number two, you know, you also want to be able to facilitate learning, right? You want to be, help your other kind of cohort learn as well and, and actually go through the case because in actuality, as you're going through the case, you know, you start off with like these kind of initial things and you're getting labs and you're getting imaging and you're kind of going through these kind of mock, you know, <laughs> cases and you're envisioning yourself as a doctor and, it, it, it is a really cool experience. It was, it was challenging to kind of get used to that. And it was challenging at the time to, to kind of learn about these things, but the, the, in essence, it ended up kind of really panic, you know, really making a big difference in my kind of education. Then when it came to kind of the clinical years, I appreciated that NICOM <clears throat> or NYT now uh, at the time was, had a lot of hospital associations. And so you'll realize that, you know, where you rotate is actually a really valuable thing. Mm -hmm. Where you rotate in terms of the faculty that are there, the other, the residents, like whether they have residents or not like that. So being in an academic environment really, really helps. And NYIT has a lot of great connections to, to a lot of great hospitals. And they also had connections to some not great hospitals. Right. Mm. But you got to see all of that and you got to see the practice of medicine. And so I'm, I appreciate being able to kind of rotate through all those kind of different hospitals, community hospitals, big academic hospitals, and really kind of learn how medicine is practiced. So then, then you start to pick up on things of how you want to practice medicine. Do you want to be in this academic type of center? Do you want to be in more of a community type of center? Um, so I felt that I was very appreciative of that. And finally, and I think towards my fourth year, I also appreciate it. I don't know if they even do it anymore as that. At that time, you know, there was a lot more visiting electives that, that, that you could, that were offered. And so doing these kind of away electives. And so I took advantage of that kind of very early on. And so, you know, and, you know, at NYIT, they do not offer neurology as part of their core curriculum. 
as many, many medical schools are. And so as someone that's very interested in neurology, right? Like that's a, again, another big, it was a big risk to be like, okay, I want to do neurology. I'm going to save it. I, I have to do it during my fourth year. And so let me just do it early on. And thankfully I loved every minute of it, but you know, and so I did it during my fourth year, but I set up like a series of probably four or five, four different away rotations, you know, in different areas across the country. And, and just kind of did it that way. And I learned again, how different hospitals work, different areas of the country work in terms of how they practice neurology. But, you know, again, thankful that NYT was able to kind of allow that. And thankful NYT was able that I was able to kind of do that with, you know, their guidance. So that's kind of what my medical school experience was. Absolutely. It seems like you had a great time at NYIT and it seems like NYIT is one of like the leading, like, I guess, institutions of the reason that you are here right now. So optimistic about your path to medicine so far. Yeah. And I think what you kind of get really good at, or maybe I got really good at as well, is just sniffing out opportunities, right? I Mm -hmm, think sometimes mm -hmm. we kind of, we tend to not open our mind to kind of different opportunities that are out there or because these things are there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just, you know, we have the beauty of Google in front of us to see what type of different opportunities are out there, what type of symposiums are out there. Right. Absolutely. Of, right. And um, I think just the trying some things like that out and kind of taking advantage of those opportunities really end up kind of really working out in the, in the end. And so I think if you can really start getting good at just kind of looking at these opportunities and kind of taking advantage of what schools offer, not just your your traditional curriculum, but just some look at, talk to people, talk to the advisors. And, you know, there's a lot of important people in these leadership positions that can offer a lot. And sometimes we don't utilize them as much. Absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, I mean, look at us right now. We're, we're essentially like utilizing all the resources that Stony Brook has. And like right now, Right now we're we're over here. Um, I just really wanted to ask. It seems like um, I was I was I was saying that it seems like Nikon really played a very big role in your journey to medicine. So I really wanted to ask us like the themes in osteopathic medicine. It's like you know like the whole body like relating structure and function. I was I was actually interested in uh, looking into the data because I think around upper ninety percent, more than ninety percent of DO students like are interested and especially match into neurology. So I was just really, I was just really wondering how does osteopathic medicine play a role and has had an effect on your career and your goals so far? So interesting. I think, you know, for, for me, I think the osteopathic medicine piece, if anything, it, it, well, actually one thing is that your, most medical schools, I don't think teach so much or put so much emphasis on the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Part of integrated into the osteopathic curriculum is kind of understanding the different, you know, um, the different systems of the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And so the different components of it, because those are involved in some of the osteopathic principles. And so I learned, a, so I got a lot of understanding of kind of the peripheral nerve anatomy because of that. So that was one thing kind of how it kind of helped shape my neurology career. Number two, and I think probably one of the most important things is that it really got you used to 
putting your hands on a patient. I think sometimes we don't, we're not as comfortable with kind of, you know, palpating certain regions or palpating, you know, a patient, even if they're tender, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of physicians, you know, if someone says they're having chest pain, right, they may not necessarily put their hands up on their chest, right? It, it may just be this kind of, but like, you know, one thing that they I learned in the DO school was actually, you know, kind of making sure that to palpate the air, kind of doing musculoskeletal type of exam. And naturally without me even thinking these days, you know, you know, if someone's having a headache, for instance, good example, right? Mm. You know, I'm palpating certain areas of the head seeing, oh, is this, is, are these areas tender? Are these areas tender? And so it just naturally got me comfortable to really put, put your hands on a patient, right? And so, and they, they kind of really drill that into you early on. No, Absolutely. I think yeah. that's, maybe that's taking uh, clinical experience to like another level, which is like, you know, as like an advanced level. But um, a funny story, actually, I was studying in the library with one of my friends once who he studies at NYIT. And, you know, he was, he, I saw him moving his hands around while, while looking at a lecture. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm practicing OMM, like yeah, yeah, yeah. mentally. And like, just practice on me. And, you know, he started like cracking my neck in the middle of the library. Everyone was staring. Yeah. No, and it is, it is a little bit weird to see. And I guess most of us don't really practice, you know, the DO, the, a lot of the DO techniques to this day. And I, you know, I for sure don't. Um, but some of those kind of small things and to be like being just putting your hands on a patient, not even in a specific way, but just putting your hands and getting comfortable with it. That small thing kind of matters a lot because I'll tell you, patients leave there with a very different experience in that like there's a level of connection that's mm. there that they're like, oh, wow, like he actually really was very thorough. Automatically, it's something that's like this, this, this doctor was very thorough because you kind of did all this, right? Absolutely. I think uh, I had a sh- similar experience to uh, what Wally had. Uh, one of my, another friend also goes to NYIT, <laughs> came, I think like a month ago and he was like, oh, I learned this um, thing in our OMM class. Uh, do you want me to try it on you? I'm like, okay. And then like he had me lay down on the table and he's like, okay, I'm going to crack your neck right now. I'm like, <laughs> and like he did it beautifully. I was like, okay, like the, when I like, if I was a patient at his like clinic, clinical setting, I'd be like, okay, I completely understand what you're talking about. It's like, I'll have a personal connection to this doctor saying like, okay, like he took the time to essentially like see what's going on rather than just like chuck me into like an imaging machine and like say like, oh, this is your problem or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, So <laughs> just one thing before, because you brought up the, both of you guys brought up the cracking of the neck. <laughs> As I became a neurologist and a stroke doctor, I realized how dangerous sometimes cracking the neck can be and how it can cause actually dissections or tears in the actual arteries. And so I've, I've treated a couple of patients that had not from do it from deal, you know, manipulation, but I've, or people have done these kind of abrupt neck maneuvers and have gotten tears in there. So just a little bit of a PSA, just <laughs> as you see people doing it, you know, just make, make sure they're aware that this is a absolutely a one precaution. I'm, Absolutely, I'm gonna, PSA. I'm gonna go give my friend a, a talk right after yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Make sure. <laughs> okay, it's like, how dare you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I I love that approach um, to that though, and I think that again speaks to your optimism. Like, um, you know, uh, some people like they they appreciate OMM, some people don't. But like, I like your your way of viewing it as like 
even I'm thinking about it now that, you know, for as pre-meds, everyone's like, oh, like we need to, we need to be able to, you know, like, as they say, like sniff patients so we can get, you know, uh, clinical experience and whatnot. And, you know, on the other side here, we have like, you know, med, med school classes where you're literally, you know, manipulating the myofarxial, um, I think that's, that's what it's called, a myofarxial manipulation. And what a great way to get, get close to patients if, if, if nothing else, or get comfortable with that setting. Yeah. And, you know, I think these, the, in these, in these kind of manipulate osteopathic manipulation classes, like, you know, you're, you're, you get really used to kind of, you know, adjusting each other, manipulating each other. And, you know, I think we made, it was very uncomfortable early on, but you really, you get used to it. They build into it. Yeah. For sure. For sure. But, you know, I, I think we're, we're stepping into a very, um, sort of niche but very useful territory for a lot of our audience because you know a lot of the audience is from Storybrook, a lot of the, a good portion you know they go to NYIT and you know just going through your educational journey you know the next step in your training after um, NYIT was your residency at Cleveland Clinic if um, if I'm not wrong and you know my friends that are you know now in medical school their main um uh, concern is okay. Like, you know, if they're like, you know, the typical over, over ambitious, over competitive, over worried, um, student, they're like, okay, now I'm in medical school. I need to maximize my chances of getting into a comp- competitive residency. And, you know, some, some people that just like, you know, they'll enjoy medical school. They'll enjoy the learning, but some people just, I've seen people get just overcome with that worry of, oh my God, like I need to lay the stepping stones right now. So I can go like be the most competitive applicant for residency. But, you know, as someone that um, was able to lay that foundation, was able to go that path, what advice would you have for the people listening that might be in the exact same shoes as you right now? You know, a student at NYIT that's, you know, trying to get into an, like a res- the residency of their dreams. What, what advice would you have in a nutshell for, for, them, to, for, them, for them to do? So I would say, and, you know, it's one of those things that, and I have the, I'm blessed to be able to kind of also be involved in kind of residency interviews and things like that as well, and kind of meet medical school applicants as well. And it's really, I love the process because you kind of really see the exciting things people do. And I want to say that one thing that really tends to stand out to me is when you can get a sense that people are passionate about something early on through their experiences, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, grades and everything will, will is one thing, right? And I think it comes to a point where there's gonna be so many people with kind of similar grades and mm. whatnot, right? I think what ends up becoming what a lot of people are looking at is kind of how mature people are and kind of how hardworking, but how committed that they have shown themselves to be. So you show yourself, you show your commitment through, like, I like to kind of see that people, even if it's something like, you know, someone's a competitive skateboarder, right? People have like very interesting passions, but like they're doing all these things over the course of, you know, medical school, like undergraduate and medical and still kind of doing it. And still, I always, that always stands out to me because they're, it's, I get a sense of their values, right? Mm -hmm. I get a sense of what's important to them and how much, how committed they are to that. And then sometimes that translates into kind of a commitment to medicine as well, right? And so sometimes, and so that may also come in the form of research as well, right? So when people are doing 
research, they, I like to see that people are like, oh, they, they kind of focus on doing research. And they I've, even if they're in, let's say, different labs, right? Like, let's say we talked about, you know, neurotoxicity, right? But let's say they stuck with neurotoxicity and they like looked at a different component of neurotoxicity. Well, in my mind, I'm like, oh, wow. Well, so they're really kind of leaning into that interest a little bit, right? And so it, it, it it's a really becomes a really good conversation piece. And it tells me that, you know, they're committed to something, they're passionate about something, and they're not afraid to kind of lean into that passion and kind of explore that some more, even if it's even while they're doing it, the, the medical, you know, learning the, the medicine and things like that, right? And so that's and that, that really kind of what stands out to me is when people kind of show that commitment early on and kind of, and they're just exploring these different things, right? Absolutely. No, I think, and I think that's true of any sort of, you know, it, in the past of medicine, there's no shortage of these bottleneck entry points that you have to go through. And, and I think commitment to something that you're passionate about is something that will always stand out. But um, just based off the discussions that I've had with some, some of these MS1s, MS2s, um, some of their concerns would be that, you know, it is, you know, obviously like subconsciously everyone tries, starts trying to look impressive rather than follow their passions. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's 100% important to, to follow your passions, but just um, wondering, since you've been on the other side of the, the table, what, what exactly is, is the right amount of balance? You know, should, should a, say if someone's considering two research opportunities, you know, and like one is like an amazing, like prestigious research opportunity and, you know, they want to do neurology, but this research opportunity is in, let's say cardiology versus a research opportunity that may not be as, you know, glamorous, but you know, it's, it's in neurology. What do you think would, and that's just one example of, you know, something that a long-term commitment that they think, you know, objectively stands out or like meets our community's standards of, you know, being a good opportunity or versus something that, you know, they're just interested in. What, what would you um, advise to someone stuck between such a dilemma? So I think it's important to just look at not just, just looking at the opportunity. So, you know, we, you talked about kind of research as an opportunity and that's, mm. you know, but what's important of the research opportunity is not just what you're researching, mm. but also the network of people you're researching with, mm. meaning that, that those mentors, right? So I can't stress enough the importance of good mentorship and good guidance and so you know if you get a sense that you know kind of when you're exploring these different opportunities well that mentor you know seems you know he's very passionate about kind of showing you the ropes or kind of showing you know showing you how this is done and kind of I think it's it's the following other people that are passionate that passion becomes very infectious Mm -hmm. and I think it, it is one of those things that it sometimes it's the mentor and the network of people that they're that you're surrounded by becomes the bigger driving factor um in addition to obviously the content of what you're there so i want to when i say when i kind of encourage people to look at the opportunity look at the whole opportunity in terms of the mentorship the other where other people are kind of going after this these experiences as well right um yeah and 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 you know how how much of a role you're, some people, there's opportunities out there where your role is gonna be rather kind of minimal of like, you know, 
putting a database together and things like that. But like, you know, kind of sneak, you know, getting a sense of like, is there room for you to kind of do your own thing in that within that database, that sort of thing, right? There's, is there, is there a room to kind of take ownership over, over something, you know, and, and um, go with it, you know what I mean? And, and, and see where it takes you, that sort of thing. So I, I really like how realistic that answer is because usually, you know, most people would be like, no, just, you know, do what you just want to do. Uh, but like, realistically, I think like that's a perfect approach to evaluate the opportunity as a whole, not just in terms of would I like it, not just in terms of is it hard, not just in terms of is it impressive, but, you know, will you grow out of it? I, I like that approach. Yeah, I think I think it's very yeah, it's very easy to just kind of think of in the, this kind of one dimension. But I think we tend to underestimate the the power of mentorship, and we tend to underestimate the power of networks. And so I, a lot of my successes, I would say, and accomplishments have been through kind of a strong network and strong kind of mentorship and guidance. You know, for sure, it's like they say, it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I really think that's like a big, big factor in where you essentially end up because it's essentially like your curiosity is going to be either uh, magnified by your mentor or essentially going to be like extinguished maybe or like going yeah. into like the wrong direction or not essentially the wrong direction. There's no such thing as wrong direction, maybe a different direction than you're liking. So like, I feel like a good role model or a mentor is what everybody essentially should aspire regardless of prestige or whatnot. It's just someone who would really take care of you. Yeah. And I think it's, and taking, and, you know, again, they may not necessarily have the same passion that you have, mm-hmm. but someone that can at least help guide you to help get you to and follow your passion more clearly, I guess, is the way. Right. And so I think, you know, getting really, I would encourage there's so many faculty out there that are like willing to kind of share their experiences and willing mm-hmm. to talk and, you know, even do opportunities like this. And um, sometimes it just, you know, we put these people on these big pedestals and I'm so afraid to talk to them, but they're, they're kind of these normal everyday people that you would kind of see at the supermarket. Right. And so, you know, um, and they're all, they're, a lot of them are just willing to kind of um, shed, share their experience, share their kind of, you know, wisdom and, you know, there's a lot to learn out there, right? I myself, you know, see, see kind of mentorship, even for my, the people above me. And, you know, that I, there's a lot of people that I kind of go to and I seek advice from and, you know, the, the you know, the Yodas of my life, right? And so, you know, uh, they're, they're offering me guidance all the time. And so, you know, one thing we learn in medical school and is that this is a lifelong learning process and the people that kind of help facilitate that learning become your very very important people in your kind of career oh, absolutely i think um, wherever we can essentially focus focus on to get a mentor is is all we can essentially do because i feel like my the way i guess my college life essentially worked my first two years i didn't really have a mentor so essentially like since i didn't have a mentor i didn't have like a direction i couldn't yeah. channel all my energy to like one direction so i like just was sitting there but as soon as like I got a mentor I knew like they didn't have like the same vision as me I'd say as you just said but like they essentially pushed me in a in a direction where I can explore my visions right now yeah actually right and I think that's and that's kind of what their role is and I think you just kind of let people just kind of blossom right 
and it's Absolutely. really exciting to see kind of on my end right like to be Absolutely. able to kind of see people just kind of run with things right and just kind of really yeah. excel with these things absolutely well you, you had something to say yeah no for sure it's it's i think just having that person in your corner like you know that that's kind of what we're trying to push with this podcast as well you yeah. know uh mm-hmm. all people always ask us like oh like how do you how do you find these people for for your episodes and we're just like mm-hmm. we just reach out to people and you know it's such that's a true. heartwarming it's such a heartwarming experience when people respond back that we our notion that you know people are you know living in new york you know you ask someone oh like am i going the right way like i asked someone <laughs> like am i am i is penn station this way they just turned the other way and started walking the other way so after after that experience you know getting such nice responses from you know professionals like you know doctors like academics it's really heartwarming and uh, i think if people are less scared of approaching people like that you know they'd they'd be doing themselves a favor <laughs> well but it goes back to kind of what i was saying earlier that sometimes you just take those risks with you know these some of these opportunities and you can really kind of ride it like this itself but you know this doing this podcast is is a risk because it's something different right not you know not everybody's kind of doing it and but i think what you're going to gain out of it is is immense you know immense knowledge of just of a network of people that you can kind of rely on and kind of reach out to get advice from and so i think you know you guys done great things here absolutely it's uh it's like uh what's it called it's i think uh we're getting a immense network we're building our uh, web of web of network but i think the biggest thing what me and wally have gotten is a great sense of gratitude that's it because i don't think so like the fact that people are nice um this podcast is a testament to that that we just ask and people just say yes. And here we're having fruitful conversations. I would never have expected this, honestly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of people, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of people that I know that at Stony Brook, even for instance, that you'd probably have to shut them up to stop talking, that they're willing to <laughs> offer their offer all their wisdom and kind of keep talking. And, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things that there's there's a lot of good people out there that are willing to kind of, you know, be there for you guys, you know, and, and kind of help guide you guys. Sometimes it just takes an email and, you know, and you just go with that. For sure. And that's, that's definitely one of the main things we're trying to push over here. Like, you know, if people are, if someone, anyone listening is like too scared to go talk to that professor or that doctor that they're like, Oh my God, they're so cool and interesting. <laughs> um, you know, a, like, you know, we're giving you the words of other doctors that are also cool yeah. and interesting. Maybe the same doctors that are cool and interesting. Um, <laughs> and you know, we're, we're trying to show people that, you know, who cares? Just, just go ask them and have a conversation with them and it, it may work out. They might say no, but you know, you ask 10 times and all you need is one yes from some dope doctor that you know just takes you under their wing and makes you yeah uh their mentee I, to be honest in my mind probably the worst thing that will would happen when you email is someone just doesn't respond right like, <laughs> i think that's probably the worst of it right and you know that's why I think mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely uh dr matthew so i just wanted to take a take a step into like your your profession your specialty right now sure. so uh basically i just really wanted to know um a lot of people have an interest in neuroscience and uh but like the thing is that the interest in the specification of neuroscience is very different from like the field and like the practice of vascular neurology in and of itself so i really wanted to know like given that your experience that you've had so far i really want to 
just direct this question to the audience a little bit. So like, tell us a little bit more about the field of vascular neurology. So from like your exposure so far, I just want to know what you have learned um, about the logistics of the field, who the field's target population is, and what lifestyle essentially you lead as a stroke neurologist. So what ba basically your day-to-day -day activity looks like. Great. Um, so vascular neurology kind of deals with specifically stroke, um, ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. And so a lot of our life is being on call, working in a hospital type of setting. And so, you know, where you're taking care of these patients. So, you know, you hear the emergency, the stroke emergency alerts come, the emergency. Code bad, yeah. The code bad. Mm -hmm. And then you come and you run there and you kind of, you direct the patient to their imaging suite. You kind of make these acute decisions and you're in it and you're in the, in, in that chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and the first thing I tell people is that, you you know, um, a lot of medicine is really kind of figuring out yourself and figuring out what you like, what you don't like, what you can handle, what you can't handle. And one thing I tell people that if they're kind of teetering, if they like vascular neurology or not is, well, how, do, how much do you like the chaos? Some people, you know, run away from the chaos. Some people thrive in it. I myself was a ladder. I thrived in the chaos. And so, I love, I love the kind of excitement and kind of making, doing that acute decision-making. And so a lot of my life is, you know, on call in the inpatient type of setting. And so, you know, getting called the night in the night for these calls of like, do I, you know, give TPA to this patient? Do I, or give the clot busting medication to this patient? Do I, you know, um, take the patient to the surgical suite, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's nutty and it's, and it's unbearable being woken up, but in the end, it's, you know, it's very, very, for me, it's been very fulfilling. Um, I have the, I'm blessed to be able to see these patients in the inpatient setting. Well, mm -hmm. you know, so I'll, I'll, you know, we'll give them TPA or, you know, take care of them and then take care of them, let's say also in the hospital too sometimes. And so meaning while they're on the stroke floor, I'll take care of them. And then I'm also blessed that I'm able to kind of see them as an outpatient too. Mm -hmm. And so I see that kind of trajectory of recovery. And so, you know, not all vascular neurologists kind of like the outpatient side. You know, most, most of them kind of like that, like I said, the chaos and like the excitement making that acute decision-making. And so a majority of people probably do the um, inpatient work and the hospital type of work. And so they're employed by hospitals a lot of times. Um, and they're on call. And so the people that, you know, again, no matter what, if you're going to be a vascular neurologist, there's going to be, you're going to have to deal with being on call, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of neurologists don't like being on call. And so they like the kind of nine to five, eight to five or whatever, eight to six, um, and not have to work weekends. Whereas I'm, I'm working weekends as well, oftentimes, right. Um, and being woken up at night. And so, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of like, um, a little sadistic in the sense of like, you know, be able to kind of um, appreciate or be able to kind of enjoy being woken up like that or working on the weekends. But I think it's a very fulfilling practice. I think when I see them as the outpatient and you're like, wow, you're like, you could totally, you know, get back to normal. Or I think some of the, 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 the most amazing things have been and this is through, through like the mobile stroke unit, we've been able to kind of, you know, when patients are 
suffering from a stroke and very they're paralyzed from the left side down or the right side down they can't speak and they have an insane amount of deficits and then they kind of we were able to kind of get into their right outside their house we're able to kind of do the cat scan right outside their house and we're able to kind of administer therapy and then from there we're able to kind of take them to the surgical suite well i'll, I'll, I'll direct them to to stony brook and i'll say get the room ready and then the surgeon goes in there does his magic and he's able to take out the clot and so and these patients leave a lot of times the next day they just walk out of the hospital right and so you see you know so again these someone that was like totally paralyzed and now is kind of leaving the hospital the next day or two and you know you see them as an outpatient you see this person they're just kind of normal every day and they're just they're so thankful sometimes and it's, it's just a really cool experience and you know but then at the same time you're also seeing the not so exciting the not so you know amazing cases where necessarily people still have deficits but what i've also appreciated is that a lot of what i do at least on the outpatient side you know when i start to follow them up is mm -hmm. I guide them through that journey of recovery in the sense of that they've, they've suffered a stroke and now they're dealing with a lot of the physical disability, a lot of the emotional disability that comes with the package of suffering a stroke. And so as a stroke neurologist that understands the process, I'm, you know, guiding them through that journey. And so I have patients that, you know, have been with me going through the process, seeing how they're how they've gone through physical therapy, occupational therapy, the speech therapy, how their swallowing is. And, you know, we're kind of gauging all those things, how they're cognitively, how they're kind of coming back to, you know, getting back to normal life per se, or the new normal. Um, but, you know, and it, I like it because, you know, I get to see all these different kinds of trajectories of recovery, but then it makes me also think of kind of well, what else can I, is there things that I can do for the patient? So sometimes it can be frustrating because there's a lot of times there's not so many things that you can do at least after they've had a show. But that's how I got into these other type of things like virtual reality and type of things to be able to kind of offer some of these, these patients these things. So that's probably my long-winded answer kind of, of how, you know, what I do in my day-to-day. -day. Um, but I knew at least during my residency that I appreciated these kind of chaotic moments of, the code bats and being there and kind of, you know, um, taking the patient to the scan or making these decisions. And so, um, and at the, you know, it's just the sweat that you that you have at the end of it, it was just like a cool experience for me. And so that's kind of how I ended up picking it. I see. It's, it seems like it's a fusion of neurology and emergency medicine at the same time. It's like, yes. there's a lot of, a lot of essentially chaos, but at the same time, like you're, you found your solace through this chaos and getting a meaning yeah, out of it. Yeah. And I think you realize of how much people need you through that through that chaos. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of times in emergency medicine, you know, you, you deal with a lot of acute acutely what's happening. And then, you know, you you don't really necessarily see them again. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think again, some of the value that I've appreciated this is that you're still seeing them. Yes. Know? Mm -hmm. uh, then you sure. kind of see what's left them. And so it's, it's a, I, I love it. <laughs> you didn't get that sense yet. But. Right. No, I, I remember I did an internship in the emergency department and, you know, every so often they'd have like code bat, you know, going on yeah. and, you know, you'd know to, you know, 
if you're in a hallway, just tuck yourself in because you know someone's going to rush past yeah. you or something like well, that. Well, there's like a team, and it's just a team of people, and it was just like you know, it's it, it's really cool. You just kind of go and you just leave. You know, you're there with the team, and you're you know, um, they kind of make way for you, and you know, it's it's a really cool experience. Absolutely. And um, just getting back to the point where we were talking about the Stroke Symposium. And I remember during uh, your Stroke Symposium, you're presenting the research. Um, Dr. Fiorella was presenting the research on the mobile stroke units. You're presenting your research on the VR technologies. So I was really interested in knowing what is the future in the context of technology or other innovations that you see in the field of stroke in like the next 10 years or something? Like, what do you think is like the big thing that is coming? essentially. Yeah. So I think, you know, I have to say, and just to, to piggyback off the, of the question, actually, I should say that one of the most exciting things about vascular neurology is that it is rapidly changing just in the past mm-hmm. five or 10 years. I've, the, the field has kind of changed dramatically and what we're able to do for patients has changed dramatically. So certainly technology is going to have a very, very integral role in kind of our decision-making process. So just in the past couple of years, we've kind of integrated imaging and understanding imaging to help determine whether patients, what's a, what's safe treatments to offer patients, right? Meaning like, you know, one big thing in stroke is understanding what tissue is dead tissue, what mm-hmm. tissue is still have are viable, what is still kind of reversible and mm-hmm. being able to kind of identify what tissue is reversible and dead tissue, that kind of using kind of the physics behind imaging, they've been able to kind of identify this even more precisely. And that's kind of opened up a lot of doors of kind of to what treatments that we can offer and what's what treatments we can kind of safely offer. And moving forward as technology, I think a lot of, there's gonna be a lot of technology and kind of this big machine, big data learning of kind of imaging to kind of understand and think about, well, how do you, what treatments can I offer with these type of, this type of patient population? And so what we're going to start to get into is use the use of technology to start kind of individualizing treatments for our stroke patients. Because right now there's probably, we put patients into a couple of different buckets and offer them treatments based on kind of what bucket they're in. But now what will, with technology, they'll start to kind of break up those buckets even more Mm -hmm. and offer those treatments based on these kind of individual buckets. And so um, whether that, whether that technology will be used for determining kind of what bucket someone's in via imaging or whatever the case is, but I think that's kind of where the field is heading. Number two, I think one of the biggest things is, and what's has been probably that kind of the holy grail of kind of neuroscience research is neuroprotection, is being able to kind of administer a medication to protect the brain from, from dying or from, from, uh, from an ischemic process per se. And so there's been just in the past two, three years, there's been a couple of things out there that have been shown and have been shown a lot of promise to minimize actually damage. And so these neuroprotectants, there's a, there's a couple of them that have been shown a lot of promise. So that's gonna be the next big thing as well as these kind of neuroprotectants. And then um, I think another big thing is just kind of recovery, figuring out ways to kind of facilitate recovery. Is there a role of 
technology and recovery. And so that's kind of things like, you know, VR, use the use of VR in this population and kind of stem cell therapies to kind of facilitate recovery, right? Can I give a patient stem cells and is that gonna help them get back to kind of where they were before? And so that's another big realm and the use of technology to kind of um, help patients recover as well is gonna be a big deal. So there's a lot, a lot of exciting things. And that's kind of another big reason why I love the field as well. You know, and I enjoy, I go to this, go to a stroke conference every year and I kind of await the big things that, that are coming down the pipeline. And, you know, it's crazy because you go to these stroke conferences and, you know, just in 2015, when pre-2015, they weren't really doing, or it wasn't very widespread that they were doing kind of surgeries for strokes or trying to retreat. But once 2015 hit, all this, all these data started to show the advantages of it. And you, know, you, you, I went to this conference and people are like standing up, standing ovations, like tears in their eyes. It's, it was just like a big moment for you know, it, uh, for stroke neurologists everywhere because it just literally you witness something changing the game, right? Game like changing. it was. A, I thought I thought that was a really cool thing to be a part of. Absolutely, another thing that was I think like the highlight of especially like the symposium that I've been to like um, Dr. Fiorello was saying time and time again and um, Dr. Dashti as well was saying time and time again that time is brain and that that was their justification of impl- implementing these new mobile stroke units at Stony Brook at Stony Brook University which I've essentially like never seen anywhere before so for the audience members that like don't essentially like know a lot about this uh, mobile stroke units would you like to explain a little bit more. Sure, yeah. So <clears throat> mobile stroke units are these ambulances that are actually bigger than normal ambulances that are equipped with a CAT scan. So they have them equipped with this kind of imaging modality with a CAT scan. And with that, and just with the CAT scan, they're, you know, we're able to kind of scan a patient or scan a, a patient's head. And so once a patient is, let's say, let's say a family member is concerned that a patient is suffering from a stroke. They say, you know, they call 911 and they say, you know, grandma's speech is slurred. She's not moving her right side. Then both are regular, your conventional kind of emerged EMS goes to the site, but also it calls our stroke ambulance as well to go to the site as well. And so they kind of meet mm-hmm. there and they determine, is this a real stroke? Is this not? What do they think? And then they're able to then put that patient within our ambulance and with this mobile stroke unit and do the imaging on them. And then once they do the imaging, then I'm able to kind of, as a neurologist, to to video in and essentially examine the patient using the crew to kind of go through these um, exams. And then there's a refrigerator on the unit that has the TPA or the clot busting medication. And with the imaging, um, and we can kind of figure, okay, well, Now it's a situation where I can actually, you know, it's safe enough to give the medication. So we'll give the medication. And then from with that imaging, I can determine if they're also a surgical candidate or not a surgical candidate. So I'm able to say, okay, you know, Dr. Fiorella, get the suite ready or, you know, and so he'll get the team there, meet, meet, meet there. And then we're able to kind of get them in. So this, that we started this in 2019, before 2019, a patient would have had to gone to directly a local hospital mm. and from the local hospital they would say oh there's a there's a stroke and needs surgery then they would transfer over here mm-hmm. Stony, because stony brick was you know 
back in 2019 was only was only the only center that was actually doing big surgeries for these strokes. And so at that point, you know, you can imagine that that's hours that that is going by when a patient's just waiting in that emergency room at the, you know, um, at, at a community hospital. And so what we've done essentially is just we've been able to kind of triage and bring them directly to Stony Brook and get everything ready, give the TPA in that time period and kind of really, you know, cut off a lot of time that they would normally have spent somewhere else. And so you can imagine that, you know, we've had some kind of great outcomes and we are the first institution to actually roll out just two ambulances. So we've had one kind of more east and kind of one um, a little bit more uh, west of those two areas that we're centered in. And so um, it's been a great experience. And right now there's about 15 to 20 across the United States right now. Um, and so um, I was actually helped, you know, I was involved in kind of the start of this mobile stroke unit in Cleveland before I left there. So they started it in about 2014, um, 2015. And so um, I've been able to kind of see how it, how that kind of panned out and then was able, when I got here, been able to see it kind of from its development here. So it's actually been a really cool experience and it's actually been done wonders for our patients. Absolutely. That's amazing. Like, I think, I think something that like a lot of people see in healthcare is like the problem of time where, yeah. you know, most people, their familiarity with time it, it, with it is that, Oh, if I go to the emergency department, I'll have to wait like so many hours. So they opened up urgent cares, but with, you know, from my you know limited understanding, I've seen some, you know, strokes in the hospital, but, you know, obviously very base understanding, like the yeah. time is of the essence, right? Because, you know, the more you wait, like the, the worse, the, um, but the potential, becomes right yeah and and i think it's one i think one 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 thing that i really appreciate is that we just has we just have some amazing team members and you know this is truly a multidisciplinary disease that Mm. there's no way we can just do this just with neurologists there's no way you can just do this just with the emergency room you have there's like so much investment from so many different parts of this institution that Mm. requires just a coordinated effort and so and there we have people looking at time in and time out and just all these different metrics just to make sure that all we're meeting all these kind of time targets and this is how it is across the country across the united states so you know it's 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 really just an amazing thing to kind of take a step back and see like wow this is like insane that every that everything is just kind of being monitored and care has to be kind of efficient you know um and it just requires just well, really a well-oiled machine, right? So I'm thankful that we have so many good, smart, hardworking people that are helping coordinate. No, for sure. Like, I mean, just, just listening to you like talk about this, it's like clear that, you know, we're living through an era of like the boom in like progress of, of this field. And, um, you know, it's amazing, like listening, like whether it's the imaging, whether it's, you know, you talk about personalization and even like to me like the mobile stroke unit seems a little bit if not it's definitely not completely but a little bit like personalizing that in that you know you have your own little personal stroke centered mobile emergency department um, ready to you know get a head start on things and you know so the technology is advancing the imaging is advancing and you know I think this is you know like we said earlier that gap in the education like you know a student can hardly picture what a neurologist does. But once you're at your level, you know, of like being a neurologist, you know what the field is. The thing that's on your mind is, you know, what are the complications that are prevalent in the field? What are the complications we see most often in treatment? 
and what is the next step needed to eliminate those complications so yeah that being said what are those most pertinent you know you've you've touched on it a lot you know the whether it's advancing the imaging whether it's advancing uh, limiting the time in between arrival and treatment um and you know those are huge steps that are going forward but what what do you think is one complication that still persists despite um this huge growth we're seeing in this yeah i think that's a great i think that's a great question so one thing, so the biggest probably complication that comes with any stroke is bleeding after a stroke. So we've been talking a lot about kind of the ischemic stroke or the blockage mm-hmm. strokes. And so the biggest complication is when these, when these strokes bleed. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's where, that's the biggest complication. And sometimes it happens if blood pressure kind of skyrockets. Sometimes it happens if even with the therapies that we give, Right. If you think about, you know, if we're trying to break up a clot, right, well, that's also breaking up some of the safe clots in our body. And mm-hmm. so that's also kind of thinning it. That's also predisposing us to bleeding. And so that's a, so right now it's probably about 5%, probably about 5% of patients that get the medication can bleed. And so every time we give the medication, we all say a little prayer and say, like, let's hope they, you know, that there is, there's no bleeding after. So that's the biggest complication. And because I will say as, and, you know, probably to speak to the point earlier, what's another area of stroke that's good, that is going to be expanding is how to do a, deal with kind of bleeding stroke. And I think that's one area that is still kind of, um, still kind of uncharted territory. There's a lot of smart people working on it, but still there's a lot of gains to make in that area. And so that's another big thing that we'll probably see in the next 10 years. The other thing I want to say is that Another big kind of complication is that you can think about when when things are fast moving, right? Mm. A lot of things can be missed, right? And so I think it's important. I think I have to kind of remind residents and things to still be there's there's we have to be fast, but also effective as well, right? And it's that effective component that that sometimes we have to kind of rein in and really make sure that this is the the process is is still very complete. Um, that we're still kind of getting good history, right, from these patients, and we're not just kind of listening for big keywords and boom, going with that. There's a lot of other um, things that need to happen, and so, so you still have to be very thorough. And a big thing that's very important to me is not to also lose the connection with the patient early on as well. You can imagine as you're kind of wheeling someone going to the CAT scanner and, you know, that you're just saying, you know, hi, Miss Smith, bye. We're just gonna take you to the CAT scanner. And there's like this kind of brief, and you can imagine these patients, they're in this kind of complete vulnerable state. People are yelling all kinds of questions at them. And, you know, um, so I think the importance of kind of maintaining the connection, I think is also a very important thing that often kind of gets disregarded because mm-hmm. they think, oh, you know, we have to kind of move fast and be, but that's a very important thing. And so um, that's why I kind of make sure that, you know, as we're going through the process, I'm still kind of connected with the patient, still kind of trying to keep the family in the loop as well, making sure making sure they, they kind of know what's happening. So it's a, it's a lot of being at multiple places at once, which is why it's very, very kind of chaotic. But, you know, it's even more chaotic for the patient, right? For sure, for sure. No, I mean, I, I absolutely love that, like not getting too lost in the hurriedness and maintaining the efficiency, 
and you know like you said the complication of you know thinning the blood too much you know hopefully like we're given how things are progressing progressing you know maybe when me and Said when we see something some more development in both those fields you know we'll think back to this conversation yeah, right now I hope so I hope but, hopefully we'll be it, in the field right if I have something <laughs> no that's the, I, I love that like doctors that you know will tell you that okay you're gonna be you're gonna be in my field now that's that is the the hallmark <laughs> of like a, an amazing mentor uh keynotes for anyone that's looking for a mentor that's yeah. the that's the compliment that we always want to want to hear yeah but, yeah yeah right but um one thing that you know i'm passionate about and i know that Said is passionate about um because of you know the life experiences that we've had is comparing comparing the success the progress the development that we're seeing in in, in america with um, the problems faced in developing countries. You know, I myself grew up in Pakistan. Said grew up in Bangladesh, um, and you know we've seen um, firsthand. You know the the it, it things are progressing. Like it's it's great, but you know still the problems faced there. You know they're great. You just can't match up to a country like like America. But um, I wanted to ask how if you have any. Um, I'm sure you have like. A lot of knowledge on this but like how do the problems seen here um in terms of the stroke field compared to those seen in you know developing countries yeah so i think that the issue is and just like in america time is brain time is also brain in Bangladesh. Mm. time is brain in pakistan time is brain mm. in china right and so you can imagine what becomes a big issue is you know is getting to the right place in the right time I think um, the other big issue I I feel, and I think this is a very prevalent issue for many, many reasons, is you know, misinformation, right? I think a lot of a lot of patients in developing countries kind of are exposed to kind of misinformation such that, you know, maybe they can, they don't need a specific medication, maybe they can kind of do deal with it with, with an alternate route. Right. And, or, you know, and some of that is mixed with the fear of like, they're fearing of what, what is to come, right. Or they're fearing of what this means, what they're fearing of, like they have this right side of weakness. Well, you know, I think that maybe if I can drink this, this kind of concoction that has garlic in it, whatever the case is, you know, then it may, it may kind of go away. And, you know, some of this misinformation, I think it can be, can be dangerous. And I think um, as physicians, I think, especially now, and this is very prevalent in, the, in America to us, certainly with the COVID pandemic is that we are as physicians, protectors of the information, mm. protectors of kind of what's kind of what's data, what's shown, what's kind of scientific, what's, and our job is, is to kind of really dispel that, dispel the, you know, the, the information to kind of make them understand. We're very much educators. And so I think it's, we're, it's often underestimated how much we have to kind of take all this knowledge that's out there, all the data that's out there and kind of formulate it in a way that can make people understand such that they kind of can kind of be more better informed mm. and so that more thing, you know, so for my, my, you know, in my field specifically, so they don't have another stroke, right? So, you know, they, they know what to do next when it happens again. So I think 
that's probably the biggest issue. I'm hoping I answered your question well enough, but I think especially in these kind of other developing countries, sometimes misinformation becomes a big issue as well. But obviously it's here too, but I think, you know, it's important that becomes, you know, and access obviously to healthcare is a big issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Answered the question, nailed it on the head. Yep. I think, uh, I think also like infrastructure plays a very big role is just having maybe even like having like a mobile stroke unit, like as you're saying, cutting down on that time is could, could save a life essentially. So infrastructure definitely plays a very big role. Um, yeah, go ahead. And I, and I, I will say that actually, you know, if you can think about just when I went through kind of how the process of, of activating a mobile stroke unit goes, mm. everything kind of depends on someone picking up that phone mm-hmm. and saying that there's a stroke. A lot of exactly right. And so a lot of exactly. it is this kind of understanding. And so getting getting the understanding out there so that they can make up. The, so what I tell patients all the time is all you have to do is pick up the phone. We'll do the rest. Absolutely. All you have to do is pick up. And so as long as you know, as long as you're educated then I think as long as you, you know, um, understand what's in front of you, then I think it's, that's all that needs to happen. No, for sure. I think that's, that's something that you really learned. Like once you gain all this experience, like in the healthcare field, um, as you have that, you know, the physicians can do what they have to do and, you know, they will, they'll, they'll be the keepers of the information, the, the ones that point out what's true from what's false, but it all, you know, really starts with the, with the people because, you know, Patient adherence is such a problem in so many fields. But and but and I I, I say that with the understanding that you know mm. it's it's our role, it's our role as physicians to to mm. make them understand. Like, you know, a lot of times it's it's very easy to say, okay, they they don't understand. So I told mm. it to them and that's it, right? Well, there's a there's a responsibility we have to not to not just to really make them understand, to make sure that that they understand the risks, the benefits they, of, mm. of not doing something. They understand what it means to not take this medication. What it all, you know. And I think, um, some, I have to say, a lot of times we fail as physicians in that, in that we just say we assume we put it into these scientific forms and we say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, you know, you need to be on a blood thinner by thank you. Right. And then mm-hmm. there's more, obviously more to it. Right. And so I think there's a lot of the, a lot that we can do as physicians to kind of help educate them. Right. Absolutely. I think social determinants play such a big role, especially yeah. when you're dealing with such complicated issues like stroke, where like essentially time is time is money, time is brain. Where it's like, because sometimes because of social determinants, many people can't get the proper care. Or maybe people think that like sometimes, like, you know, you have a um, transient stroke and people might think it's like, oh, it's just a headache or something like yeah. that or something like that. So like that, that prevents them from actually seeking proper medical care and that that then snowballs into something big. Right. And I think and that's why I think improving our accessibility to these to these patient populations to to help improve their literacy. I think there there, there has to be kind of more movement towards that. And there is there is kind of more movement towards that. But, you know, that's a big that's a big thing that kind of we'll hopefully see in the next, you know, decade. Yeah, absolutely. Um, since like, I'm like right now, um, especially with my major and like my interest in like medicine and future, like I'm really interested in neuroscience and I really sh- um, am trying to get into the stroke business 
essentially so like trying to see trying to see what essentially you know like how you can like essentially go in here and I was looking looking online and um seeing seeing doctors work through I was just seeing that um the cerebrovascular field is filled with neurosurgeons neurologists and radiologists so I really wanted to know how do stroke neurologists work with other specialties to deliver the best possible care and where do neurologists within that fit into that team dynamic essentially so as as I kind of was alluding to earlier that you know this, this is, it takes a village to kind of really, and it takes a well-coordinated effort to kind of really help make patients to really kind of improve their outcomes and improve their, their care. And so we are working with neurosurgeons, we are working with radiologists. So I will tell you for every mobile stroke unit call that comes out, that goes out and, and, and I'm talking to them, I'm you know, I have, I'm on the phone with the neurosurgeon. I'm on the phone with, for all these, for with the EMS crew, I'm on the phone with the radiologist who's just read the image while at the same time, I'm telling where the, the crew where to go. And so, um, it, so there is this direct, there's this communication that's kind of constantly happening in this, in this role. The role of the radiologist obviously is to read the acute imaging, right? And they communicate with the neurologist. Well, the neurosurgeon is to help identify if there is a occlusion that is amenable to surgery and to kind of confer with their neurologist if, you know, if the symptoms kind of match up, it doesn't make sense to kind of go in, is there an elevated bleeding risk and to have that discussion. Then there's a coordination with the emergency room team as well to say, well, is there other issues? Are there other medical things? Is, do I have to intubate this patient? you know, meaning is, is there airway compromise as well? And so um, there is, it is, it requires a lot of coordinated effort. And as a neurologist, you're assessing the patient and I'm like looking at them and thinking as I'm assessing them via video, for instance, I'm thinking in my mind, well, where exactly where I picture that clot to be at? Mm -hmm. right? I'm like, as their symptoms, I'm kind of pinpointing in my brain, it would probably be right around there. And I'm going through the image, looking at that, talking to the radiologist and say, do you see it there? I see it there. Do you see it there? And then, you know, talking to the neurosurgeon and say, we see it there. Let's, let's, let's go after it. You see? So it yeah. is, it is uh, and it all happens within probably five minutes. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's um, awesome. Five or ten minutes, yeah. Hopefully within five minutes, actually. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's like exactly what we were talking about. Like uh, when the code bat goes in the emergency department, you know, it's the whole team that runs through. It's not just like the, the neurologist yeah. it's, and I find it so interesting that, you know, um, the medical fields where they're not just working solo. Like, you know, we even had a physiatrist on the podcast once. Um, and, you know, even he had to say that, you know, we work with the orthopedic surgeons, the rheumatologist, yeah. the um, PT. And I, I feel like a, a similar sort of kinship over here where, you know, it's, the neurologist has to communicate across specialties, you know, with the radiologists, with the neurosurgeons, and even just this diverse sort of um, interplay of patient interaction you're talking about, where on the one hand, you have the critical five to 10 minutes. And on the other hand, which is something I wasn't um, as familiar with um, um, that neurologists play a role in is, you know, the long term um, observing the rehab, you know, that emotional connection with the patient, and whatnot, and, you know, seeing that um, recovery um, back yeah, to... some are, I would say not all the neurologists are kind of continuing following. I think a lot of them do, but, you know, I take a special, I know I take a special interest only because I've seen them on the, 
mm. patient side, right? So I've only, and I have to say, it's only kind of latter, the kind of last probably five years that I've really kind of got interested in that, in, in that kind of um, role. And I think part of it is that, you know, I was very much into the chaos before and just like the excitement of that, you know, the, those first kind of 20 minutes, but, you know, just appreciate everything else thereafter. Uh, but I would say most of medicine is these kind of well-coordinated efforts, right? So, you know, heart attacks are the same way, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. these people are kind of coming in, they're working with EMS, they're working with the ER team, the ED team, they're working with the cardiology, they're working with the surgeons. And so it is, it is a very, you know, we follow a lot of kind of what we've understood about stroke is kind of mimicked based on cardiology as well. And so they've kind of followed a similar fashion. So most of medicine, I would say, is these kind of well-coordinated efforts. And I think, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's oftentimes underestimated how much of a well-coordinated effort it is. And so, um, like I said, I'm thankful for, and this, again, we've been talking about specialties, but I've been thank, thankful about the nursing, like the, the nurses do an amazing, incredible job. The paramedics do an incredible job. My physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, do an incredible job. Everybody's kind of, touching that patient and really kind of making impact. So, you know, um, it is, it, it really, really takes a well-coordinated effort to kind of make these things happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it just shows, it's like the fact that you're taking an interest not to, not to compromise, you know, like the patient care and just talking to the patient as if they're, they're still a human. So yeah. it's like, it just, it just shows you that like, all these five to 10 minutes, you need to essentially be there for the person in and of itself and as well be there for your team and nurture your team as well. Yeah, I would, and, and one thing I've always told kind of residents and you know medical students that come, and I think my, I might have even said this in the symposium as well, is that you know, a lot of times you know, we probably see many, many patients a day. Um, and so we may forget some of these faces, but a lot of times, many times the patient all is such a traumatic moment that your your face and the people that have kind of been involved in their care kind of gets etched in their mind forever and so they're always going to kind of remember everything that you did you know good or bad right and so i think it is and it's that's why it's important to kind of really make sure that you know kind of we do everything we can and we kind of make the best efforts to kind of connect with them and things like that um but you're right and it's important to kind of nurture and kind of recognize the hard work that these these kind of other ancillary staff and staff members do um, regularly because in order for us to kind of continue to work and be well coordinated we have to kind of make sure we're all well recognized that you know everyone understands their role and understands that what they're doing is very impactful right Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely um well um dr matthew it's with that being said i just wanted to give you a huge, huge thank you for coming on to our podcast, oh, absolutely, absolutely. for for connecting with me on LinkedIn, for responding to our message. I know it's just, <laughs> uh, I'm just an undergrad, but thank you so much for agreeing to no, come to us. It's sure. been a, it's been an amazing conversation and it's just been so amazing to see the amount of support we've received through Stony Brook community on this podcast, especially previous guests. And now, especially you coming on yeah. to our podcast, but it's, it's just been, it's just been great uh, to see the Stony Brook community really supporting and nurturing us. And it really means the world to us, essentially. So I'm sure our listeners will find your advice very helpful. And there's no doubt you've answered some of their burning questions about neurology and stroke as a whole. So if there's anything else, listeners, we've missed, though, uh, any questions you'd like to ask 
feel free to visit our Instagram and DM us with feedback. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple podcast at Chai with the Premed Guys and see you guys for the next episode. But until then, stay warm and keep drinking chai. I'm feeling jittery. I'm feeling all types of jittery, my body's about to burst. Pistoling like John Wick, running late for work. Where it all came from, jumping like Jason Tatum. All without a frame of reference. All types of Hey, chai lovers. If you've made it this far, I must inform you that your cup of chai is now empty. That being said, please leave a review and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. What happens when you do this is that my chai supply is magically replenished. I then send a cup of chai over to Saeed to be taste tested before it's sent to your doorstep. You won't actually receive this chai, but the warmth and taste of this beautiful beverage will reach you nonetheless in the form of a brand new podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please DM us on Instagram with any feedback and be sure to check out our friend Dre Storm, who's provided us with this awesome outro music. That's D-R-E-I-S-D-O-R-M on Spotify and Instagram. One last thing, life can get tough. But when it does, just sit back, take a sip of chai. Ooh.